Hi everyone, my name is Maya, and welcome to Psych Mike, the podcast that explores the lives and career paths of industry leaders who use psychology to make an impact in the world. This week, I sat down with Dr. Karen Kogan, a senior sports psychologist at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, who works with acrobat and combat sports, including diving, fencing, gymnastics, and wrestling. Karen's career in the sports world started when she was a young gymnast herself. In college, she competed on the nationally ranked UCLA gymnastics team. She says, And I would just get in my mind that I was going to learn a new skill, and I would go at it until I did. Throughout her time as a gymnast, she began to notice that If I wasn't quite there mentally, I could see the difference in my own performance. This initial interest in mental skills training developed into her career goal to become a sports psychologist so she could help other athletes like herself, not just to perform better, but to achieve higher levels of well-being. She earned her bachelor's in psychology and her master's in kinesiology from UCLA and her PhD in counseling psychology from Ohio State University. Now, as a senior sports psychologist at the USOPC, Karen gets to travel all over the world She's attended several Olympic Games and is headed to Tokyo this summer with her athletes. She says, It took me 18, 19 years to get the job I wanted. In this episode, Karen takes us through all the different paths you can take to become a sports psychologist, how her persistence landed her her dream job with the USOPC, her day-to-day life working with several Olympic teams, and much more. Karen, thank you so much for being here today. I have been really looking forward to interviewing a sports psychologist and the fact that you also work with the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee is such an honor to be able to interview you. You work with such high level athletes um, and you've accomplished so much in your career. Um, and I can't wait for you to be able to share your wisdom with my audience. Oh, well, thank you. I'm happy to be here and share some stories. Beautiful. So um, can you first, actually, before we get into your career, um, can you give a little bit of background on how you grew up, any hobbies that you had as a kid, what you wanted to be when you grew up, anything like that? Well, I I don't know. I think I started off doing cartwheels. I mean, I've been doing cartwheels and things as long as I can remember, but the, my mom enrolled me in this, um, this woman had a, it turned her garage into kind of a little ballet gym kind of thing. And we did some ballet, some tumbling and some tap dance. And so, you know, we went for an hour, a couple times a week or something. And we did all three of those things. But the thing I really liked was the tumbling and it just sort of stuck. And so, you know, I would tumble on the front and backyard at my parents' house. My dad had built a fence in the back. It was like this concrete fence, but it was about the width of a balance beam. So I practiced balance beam on the fence. Your parents must have really trusted you to (laughs) allow you to be playing on that (laughs) concrete fence. Yeah, I I don't think they loved it. I think maybe they just didn't watch some of the time. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, he turned our our swing set into a set of uneven parallel bars. So yeah, my, my my parents were super supportive all growing up. So you, it sounds like you kind of like gymnastics was your path since you were little. It was, yes. What was it about tumbling and, and cartwheeling? What was it about it that was so, so fun to you? You know, there was something about going up in the air, upside down and flipping, twisting, landing on your feet most of the time, at least. Um, I don't know. There was something so satisfying about that. And and I would just get in my mind that I was going to learn a new skill and I would go at it until I did. In fact, I remember my one of my first coaches pulling him aside and saying, I want to learn a round off back handspring today. Will you teach me? And I think it sort of surprised him because most everyone else just sort of did whatever the rest of the class was doing. But uh, he said, uh, we'll be working on that today. So he just put me in line <laughs> with everybody else. <laughs> so did do you think that you always had it in you, this like leadership knack, this want to like help others and provide for others? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I was a sensitive kid growing up and things would affect me, you know, and I was aware of my emotions. And I think maybe that's partly what carried me into this field. But I guess the other piece was having been involved in sports and knowing how much the mental side was important for performance. You know, if I wasn't quite there mentally, I could see the difference in my own performance. So I think, you know, a combination of several things led me to this field. 
So you actually competed as a gymnast at, at UCLA. There was like a, a team, a gymnastics yes. team. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. And they're, they've been very successful over the years. Um, so I was there in the early 80s and competed for the team there for two years until I had a pretty bad knee injury. And then that took me out. You know, it actually caused me to retire earlier than I would have. So that was another um, part of the the mental side of sport, you know, that's where I saw that mental health can be impacted by things like injury and mm. forced retirement earlier than you planned. Um, so it's not just about the sports and mental skills to perform your best. It's about all the other things, life, life issues, mm -hmm. sport issues, everything impacts an athlete's well-being. Mm. And a pandemic. <laughs> yes, right. I mean, add that on top of it all. Yeah. Can you talk about a moment where you realized that you were interested in the mental aspect of the training? You know, I don't exactly remember the first time I realized that, but it was early on. And, and when I realized that there was something called mental training and sports psychology, it was not a well-established field and most people didn't know what it was. So in high school, I was telling everyone I wanted to be a sports psychologist and nobody really knew what that was. But I found, I don't know, four books in the library or something on one was the inner game of tennis and, you know, some others that were related to mental skills training. And I, I read those and I tried it out on myself, you know, because no one else tried on. So I tried it on myself. And, you know, I realized that that some of that had promise. And so then all through um, as I finished high school, that was my career goal. So I knew early on that I wanted to do this, but I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. That part wasn't very clear. It's much clearer now, but at the time I didn't quite know how I was going to do it. So I was an undergrad in psychology at UCLA. And by the time I got to the end of that degree, there was a little bit more awareness of sports psychology. And then I was able to find some graduate programs, but mm. I wasn't quite sure in the beginning how I was going to get here. Mm. You said that um, you had tried on these skills on yourself because nobody else was kind of doing it. Would you say it was pretty common for athletes back then to not have a, a coach working with them on the mental aspect of, of their training or maybe just for your sport or? I would say that it happened rarely. You know, the coaches were there for the physical side of the training. And, you know, if you had a pretty intuitive coach who understood athletes, they would maybe handle some of the psychological issues pretty well, you know, but they still didn't always know what they were doing either. I would say that there was very little emphasis placed on the mental side of training. Um, now, a little bit more as I got into college, I think there was some awareness, but, um, you know, now it's such a big part of what athletes do. Mm -hmm. Back then, it was more unusual. Mm -hmm. And at every level, it seems, too. I mean, yeah. obviously, the higher up you get, the more important it gets and the more emphasis that, you know, gets put on that um, aspect of things because the pressure and all of that. But um, yes, it's yeah, I, I'm, I feel like I see it a lot now. My friends who are athletes, you know, had people working with them on their mental health, but also their performance and helping them deal with stress and pressure, which is great. <laughs> it's great that, that, yes, that awareness. And it's, it used to be a little bit secretive. People didn't want to admit necessarily that they were working with the sports psychologist or the mental side, because they might be perceived as a head case or something like uh -huh. that. And, and now I think athletes are pretty open about it that, yep, they work on the mental side of the game, just like they work on the the physical side. And in fact, we're having open discussions about athlete mental health and not just mental training skills, but how do we help athletes improve their well-being? and, you know, admitting that this is hard mm. a lot of the time and the stress is, is ridiculously high and, and athletes struggle, you know? So, um, so there's a lot more open talk about mental health as well as mental skills training. Right. Why did you actually decide to major in psychology? Well, uh, um, so there's not really an undergraduate degree necessarily in sports psychology or, or not a degree that was going to get me where I wanted to go. Um, and I thought the next closest thing is psychology. So I'll do that. And I, I believe there 
there was a sports psychology class offered. So, so one, <laughs> you know, I could get one. Yeah. Um, and then our kinesiology department at UCLA had a sports psychology emphasis. And so I ended up getting my master's degree there. Um, but I was able to take some of those courses as an undergraduate. And um, so that was how I sort of pieced it together. Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, to do what I do, you're never going to be able to do it with an undergraduate degree in psychology. You're going to have to get a graduate degree. So I knew that that was going to happen, mm. but I just thought, well, psychology is probably the clearest path. Mm. I realized I, f- I forgot to ask you this a bit ago, but I know you said there wasn't a moment that, that was, cl- that became clear to you, but, uh, it's cool that you were an athlete. And then now you have that more of an intimate understanding when you do work with, with athletes now, um, in a more professional setting. And I'm curious, is there a moment or a time you can think back to when you were on the team at UCLA, where you would have really benefited from having someone like you in your life to help you? And do you carry that with you now? Oh, definitely. You know, my my first knee injury was during my freshman year, and I had never been hurt badly ever. I mean, you know, gymnastic sports, you always have little things here and there, but never been hurt badly ever. And I tore my ACL and my MCL. um, And it was, it was, you know, pretty severe. And in fact, after it happened, I didn't even realize there was anything wrong. Oh, my knee feels a little unstable, but I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, let me just get back up and go. And the coaches said, no, I don't think so. But you know, I had really been progressing and doing well. And the the season ahead looked like, you know, I was going to have a lot of chance to compete for the team. And I was so excited about it. And that just, it took it away. The season was over for me after a few meets, you know? Um, So that was very difficult. And I, I wouldn't say that I fell into a depression, but certainly I struggled with that disappointment and I had a lot of good support around me. So that was helpful, but yeah, I, I mean, I could have benefited in talking with a sports psychologist and then the next season I came back and competed, but then I re-injured the knee again toward the end of the season and then had to make a decision about, um, continuing or not. And that was a very difficult decision. So, you know, I think if I had had someone to talk to about that, I, it would have been helpful Mm -hmm. to me. And I actually did seek out somebody, there was somebody in town who, had a a business and, and said he was a sports psychologist. And I did talk to him a couple of times, but it just wasn't sort of a a thing that a lot of people did. And, and so, um, I kind of, I, I didn't continue on with it, but I think if we had had somebody there with the team, it would have been easy to talk more often, just pull them aside during practice or something and say, I'm really struggling with this. Um, so yeah, that, that was a really hard time that I went through. Right. Yeah it's interesting that you also got the master's in kinesiology. First of all, what is kinesiology? (laughs) Well, so kinesiology is, it's a sports science and and that's one of the names. A lot of departments are sports science departments. This one was kinesiology, but it had different tracks. So there was biomechanics and exercise physiology and sports psychology and motor learning. So those were the four tracks. So it's, it's essentially, you know, very physiologically based and, and to be in sports psychology, you really do need to have that background, even though that's not the stuff I do every day. Um, I, I do look at the athlete as a whole person. So if something's going wrong, sure, it could be because they're struggling mentally, but it could also be uh, a physiological issue. And so I need to at least be able to recognize that this could be physiological. Let's, let's have you talk to the physiologist or a nutritionist or something like that, you know, that it's not always going to be the mental piece. And so we can't look at it through such a narrow lens. So um, that's the philosophy behind why I got that degree. And there was an emphasis on sports psychology. My advisor at the time was someone that I had met as an undergraduate. I'd taken her classes and um, she wanted to work with me as a student. And so it just, it kind of worked out really well. And, but I always knew I was going to go on to get a doctoral degree and I wanted it to be in psychology because I felt it was important to be licensed as a psychologist that I could work with athletes, both in their mental training, as well as their mental health. Hmm. Is, would you say that the route that you took getting that background in kinesiology and then getting your uh, doctoral degree in psychology is common for a sports psychologist, or are there other ways that people tend to do it? 
Well, there are several ways. That is one of them. And at the time, there wasn't a direct path. So I did kind of luck on to this one, which I think has actually served me well because it's it's trained me in both areas, both in sports science as well as psychology. And, and now many students of sports psychology go that route. There are some programs where you kind of get the all-in-one deal. So you've got they have a good relationship between the psychology and exercise science department. So you can get the sports psychology training as well as the clinical psychology training and you come out and then you have your degree all in one. Uh, whereas I went to two different institutions for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some choose to go more of a sports science route to where they are more in the educational field. So they, they teach athletes mental skills, but they don't cross over into the mental health side of things. Mm-hmm. So clinical issues come up like, um, depression, eating disorders, that sort of thing, then they have to refer to a clinician, either a clinical sports psychologist or a clinical psychologist. Um, So there's that route. And then some people come in just through psychology and they're trained as a psychologist um, and they've maybe done some other coursework on the side to get some of the sports science training. So our field is very diverse that way. And people come into it through all sorts of different avenues. I was going to say, it sounds like there's so many different areas you can focus on that, you know, if you've never heard of sports psychology, I don't think anyone, I don't think you would know that there are so many different, you know, um, ways you can practice this. Right. Well, it's confusing and, um, you know, flexible all at the same time. Like there's so many combinations of things you can do. And, you know, what I suggest for students is to to decide what you want to do in this field. Do you want to do applied work? Do you want to work with, if you want to work with Olympic teams or most college teams, they are going to require you to be licensed as a, a mental health practitioner. It seems mm-hmm. like it, we're kind of moving that direction in the field. Um, but if you want to be a university professor and you want to teach sports psychology and you know you want to work with some teams just on the mental skills training part, you can go through a sports science degree and, and get what you need. So it really kind of depends on what you want to do. Um, and, and you want to define that. So to make sure that whatever your training is, is going to set you up to, to be able to get where you want to be. Mm, that's actually really helpful. Thank you. And I, I know that you got your PhD in counseling psychology, not clinical psychology. Can you talk about right. the difference between those two and why you ultimately chose counseling? Yeah, you know, I think that they actually are more similar than different. And certainly now they are, but at the time, um, you know, counseling, psycho- cl- clinical psychology was, I thought, more looking at what's the pathology. So, you know, how do we diagnose? How do we treat? We're dealing with more severe mental health issues. And counseling psychology was more um, looking at wellness, you know, so people are doing pretty well, but they've got areas they need to work on. You know, there was a big career counseling emphasis where I was. Um, And, you know, we just look at how can we take somebody who's pretty high functioning and help them be better. And that to me fit well with what I I thought I wanted to do with sports psychology, because, you know, athletes typically are high functioning and, and we're trying to help them perform their best under pressure, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that the two have really come closer together because as I um, went through my training, I found myself doing more and more, you know, diagnosing and working with sort of really severe types of clinical issues. And so I really had to learn all of that stuff too. And, um, so I haven't looked, you know, recently at programs to know what the philosophies are and if, if there's been any change like that. But um, I, I, again, I think that they've come closer together, but, you know, historically they've come from, from different foundations, I right. would say. Right. Do you have any advice um, for maybe questions that potential applicants can ask their people in their program or as they're going through the application process to kind of assess what that foundation is, like whether it's more diagnosis oriented or wellness oriented, as you were saying? You know, I, I think really asking um, 
what the what the emphasis of the program is, what kind of practicum sites do they go to? Mm. You know, in counseling psychology, we went a lot to counseling centers, university counseling centers, um, whereas in some of the clinical programs, it was a hospital setting or something. So, you you know, you you look at what is their philosophy and, and they should be able to articulate that, you know, and what are the kind of practicum placement sites that their students go to? What's what kind of coursework do they take and what's the emphasis? You know, there was a lot bigger emphasis, I would say, on um, testing and assessment in clinical programs and not as much in um, counseling programs, although again, it seemed to be moving toward that. So there are things like that that might differentiate the two programs. But I think in the end, you know, a bigger question is the the sense of fit that you have with that program. So their philosophy and how you see things and who you're going to be working with and the professors that will be um, guiding you in your classes and your research are these people that you feel you can work with for five years, because it's probably going to be that long, you know, and that's a long time to be working in an environment that doesn't quite fit for you. So I think, you know, those are some questions also to be asking. If there's this, this aspect of fit is something I've heard over and over and over again from speakers on this podcast, and I'm starting to think it's really, really important. (laughs) So it's good to hear it again. And, um, um, and from somebody, I don't think I've ever had a speaker who did their PhD in counseling psychology. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's cool to hear your perspective. Um, yeah, I I think um, you know the the fit piece also. Well, it's kind of an intangible, you know, and so it really is just that sense that you get as you walk in for the interview. Also realizing that everybody puts their best foot forward in an interview, the faculty and the other graduate mm-hmm. students, you know, so. So you're not going to see everything, but, you know, hopefully you see some good things and things that you feel that will help benefit you in your own training. But, you know, I would say the fit also um, goes with the the other graduate students there, you know, so are these people that you can be in class with and, and do research with? That's another piece of the fit that you want to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. And were there others in your program who were interested in sports psychology or was it mostly you? Um, yes, you know, here and there, but it was, it was, my doctoral program was not a sports psychology program. And I knew that going in, I knew that I was going to get general training as a psychologist. And at that point, that is what I wanted. But the reason I, I went to Ohio State and the reason that I chose that was that there were two faculty members there who had sports psychology as an interest, and they each were working with teams there at the university. So I was able to, I guess, shadow one of them in a team that she was working with. And then after, I'm not sure, a couple of quarters or whatever, the end of the first year, she says, okay, now I think, you know, it's your, you can go out and see if there's a team that you could work with because nothing was set up. Like I had to go ask, oh, you know, here's my, um, my proposal and here's my skill. And I'd like to, you know, give this to your team. And, and there was one coach that said, yeah, I want that. And it happened to be the gymnastics coach. So I went, well, <laughs> yep, I know that sport. So, um, so it worked out very well. Um, he was very open to it. And, you know, I did quite a bit of work with his team over the next couple of years that I was there before I went on my internship. Um, so, so that was, how it worked, but there was nothing really set up. It was all more just stuff that I had to create for myself. It's such a cool experience. It's something that I, you know, if I hadn't been speaking to professionals who've been through grad school, I wouldn't know that this is such a, you know, fundamental part of grad school is, is kind of, you do get a little bit of creative freedom in the experiences that you construct for yourself. And it's super cool that you get to do that so young and with so little experience. And what always strikes me is that, that how are you able to build the confidence to go in and work with this gymnastics team and, you know, just go in there and, and share what you know and share your expertise as, as much or as little as, it, as that was at the time? Well, I had a master's degree in kinesiology already at that point. And, and the focus had been on sports psychology, mental skills training, devising programs for teams. I had a pretty good outline in my mind of the things that I could do and the services I could offer. And so I kind of wrote up a proposal. Here's the things I can do for your team. You pick, like, what are the things you want? And so I had that 
in my back pocket, I guess. And um, having been a gymnast, I think the coach was pretty interested in that because he knew I would understand the sport and some of the the struggles that the team faced. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that I did have some practice. I had some skill. I had some knowledge. And I, I was getting supervised by my advisor. And so she, you know, she helped if there were things that were a little trickier for me. Um, mm. But the interesting thing is then when I went on my internship, uh, which is another piece of getting a doctoral degree, you have to go on an, a year of clinical internship. And I ended up at UC San Diego in their counseling center. And I, when I got there, I said, yeah, I'm really interested in sports psychology. Well, nobody there had any knowledge or anything, but they said, sure, contact the athletic department, see what you can do. So I did, you know, and, and again, there were a couple of coaches who wanted some assistance and I uh, put programs together for them and taught the athletes mental skills. And um, so, and what happened, I guess, and, and I mean, the supervisors will ask, yeah, great. We can't tell you anything you know, specific to sports psychology. We can't supervise you in that way, but you know, we can certainly, it's just, it's outreach to one of our departments. Yeah, we can help you, you know? So, but apparently, and I didn't realize this until maybe 20 years later, um, apparently that that was so popular that when I left, they asked, okay, now who's going to do this for us? And they kind of scrambled around to, well, is anybody interested in this? And, and each year they were able to find somebody who would liaison with the uh, athletic department and provide some of these services. So I guess it continued on that the athletic department was interested in this, but I didn't even realize that after I left, I thought, well, you know, I did that for a year and now I have to move on and I don't know what they're going to do. So Mm. that was interesting for me. Yeah. Wow. And would you say that your experience working with how many uh, practicums did you have? Like how many different sites were you able to work at? Oh, you mean throughout all my training? Throughout, oh. Yeah. Throughout graduate school. Oh gosh. I don't even remember. I, I mostly was placed at counseling centers and I did one, I did some work in a residence hall also, but I was primarily in counseling centers because that was where I my career goal was. So they were different counseling centers, but primarily counseling centers. Uh And when you say that was your career goal, you wanted to end up in a university counseling center doing that and working with athletes specifically? Well, I I guess my my initial career goal, because I knew I wasn't going to come out and immediately walk into a job like what I have now as a full-time sports psychologist. So my, my intermediate career goal was to work at a university counseling center where I could connect with the athletic department and whether there was a program there or not that I could build one in some way. Oh, very cool. Okay. But that that's evolved since. Yes. Now, yeah. so many athletic departments have sports psychologists, and they're hiring additional sports psychologists, and sometimes mental health practitioners also, not just sports psychology, but mental health. So now, well, certainly the the bigger athletic programs all have a sports psychologist, mental health practitioner, all those kind of roles now. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if generally coming out of these programs, if you want to be a sports psychologist, are you qualified to work with any type of athlete um, or are there sports psychologists who specialize in a certain type of sport? How does that work? Yes, to both, really. You know, the the skills that I teach athletes are very similar and there were certainly adjustments that are made depending on the sport and the circumstances that athletes face but but the basic mental training skills are very similar across sports um so i and i have worked with many sports many of them i don't know much about and i have to learn um but there are people in my field who do specialize you know they really would prefer just to work with say acrobatic sports because mm-hmm. that's something that they know a lot about um, or maybe, you know, they just work with, you know, track and field and volleyball or something like is, you know, it's the ones that they tend to work with. So some have, have chosen those specialties, but for the most part, I think a lot of us will work with just about any sport, as long as we're able to learn something about it. Mm. Yeah. I forgot about that aspect. Like it's totally different to work with a gymnast than to work with a volleyball player. It's well, and totally for instance, different. I, I work a lot with our fencing team and um, I've worked with them for the past 11 years that I've been in this job, but I didn't know anything about fencing when I started and, and I really had to learn and, you know, to their credit, I don't think they were really expecting me to know fencing. They wanted to know about the mental side. And so I learned a lot. I went to tournaments. I 
talk to the coaches, talk to the athletes. And now, you know, 11 years later, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I, I do understand the sport a whole lot more. I know how to speak the language, you know, when an athlete comes to me about something, I know what they're talking about. They don't have to explain it. So, um, you know, you definitely can learn sports that you don't know. Yeah. Let's move into your first job out of grad school. Uh, what was it? Well, I worked at um, SMU, Southern Methodist University. I worked there for a year in the counseling center. And, and I tried to make a connection with the athletic department. There really hadn't been anything there before. So I did counseling for university students. Most That's mostly what I did. And then my second semester there, they asked if I wanted to teach a sports psychology class. I don't think it had been offered before. So I taught sports psychology class which was fun. And then I did a little bit of work with some of the athletic teams there. Um, so I was only there for a year, didn't really get to establish that program. And then pretty soon after that, I moved to the University of North Texas and I was there for 18 years. And that's where wow. I did a lot of work with the athletic department and kind of an established a sports psychology program there. So you built uh, an undergraduate sports psychology major? Not, not undergraduate, oh. graduate. Graduate. Level. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, I did connect with the athletic department, did some work with some of their teams, and then we established a uh, a training program for graduate students where they could get kinesiology training and psychology training. And it was a kind of a one-stop shop kind of thing. So they could get everything they needed to be a sports psychologist coming out of that program. And, you know, I helped to supervise the practicums for the um some of them worked with the athletic department. Some of them worked with sports in the community. So then we had a practicum experience going so that they didn't have to find their own like I did, you know, it yeah. was a bit, they could step into something that was already there. Totally. And um, it's, I really do want to get into your work at um, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but I, I'm curious how your experiences at a university um, helped you kind of transition into your current role? Or is there anything that you learned there that you still continue to rely on now? Because the roles are so different, it seems. Well, I, I should say that at the same time I was working at the university, I also had a private practice. And part of that private practice was to consult with Olympic teams. So I fir my first work was with the U.S. ski team. And one of my colleagues knew that they were looking for a woman to work with their their women's team. And I think they wanted somebody who was a sports psychologist with psychology training, was a woman and could ski. And I'm, I might've been the only one at the time. I don't know. There weren't too many. So, so that's how I got into that one. And I ended up working with the ski team for, I would say close to 10 years and going to two Olympic games with them. Um, so I was doing that at the same time, and I was really gaining that experience around the Olympics. And then um, I worked uh, as a contractor with the Taekwondo team in 2008, going to the Beijing Olympics. So I was doing all of that in addition, and that's where I got my Olympic experience, and that's really what helped me get the job here. Wow. Um, what do you mean when you say that you, uh, were, you worked as a contractor? Oh, well, I wasn't a full-time employee for the US OPC. And the the woman who had the position here before me um, needed somebody to help with Taekwondo. And she because she had other sports she was working with, and she said, Hey, can you can you come in and work with them? You know, it was mm, probably three years out from the Olympics. So a chance to get to know them, get to be part of the team and provide services you know you don't just come in and go oh here you know talk to me and let me help you and the next weekend you're going to compete and you're going to have all of this mental skills stuff figured out so right. it's it's a process of building the relationship and building the skills so so i came in and worked and and i i had my other job in my other life you know and but then i was a contractor meaning that i just worked with that team and they mm. paid me separately mm. okay okay and what made you want to transition to the US OPC? Well, this was always the final career goal. Uh -huh. So, um, oh, I, yeah, good I for you. yeah, I knew it wasn't going to happen in the beginning and, and it took me what, 18, 19 years to get here, but I did. <laughs> um, so this was always what I wanted to do. And, you know, partly there weren't, there were only a few positions, maybe two positions when I started looking early on in my career. And then by the time I got here, I guess there were four or five 
psychologist, sports psychologist, but yeah, this was always what I wanted to do. And then this opening came up and, um, the timing in my life was right, you know, cause partly I was going to have to move and I had children, young children at the time. And, um, so that was a consideration as well, but the timing was right. And the position was open. And I thought, well, these positions don't open up very often. I think I better just go for it. And, and I did, I mean, it was, you know, there were parts of it that were really challenging in the beginning and with young children and traveling and all that. But, um, you know, I worked through it and now it's, you know, I understand what is required. My kids are grown and on their own, it's a little bit easier that way. And I have a pretty good routine now, but, um, yeah, it was, those early years were tough. How much, how much are you traveling? Well, in the past year, not that much, but normally, um, prior to COVID, I was um, in an Olympic year, let's say, and every year of the quads a little bit different. But in in a year leading up to the Olympics, I probably had three trips a month, and one of them was international. It was something like that. Wow. So I traveled a lot, and I was afraid to even count up the number of days I was gone. A lot of my colleagues were saying, "Oh, yeah, I'm, you know, 200 days on the road a year," and I was like, oh, "I don't even want to know." So I don't know. <laughs> But I I travel a lot. A lot. It's a lot of what I do. And now, um, so, you know, things just have started again. So this year I went in March, I went to Budapest. That was my first trip in a year to the day. Uh, Last month, April, May, I went to Tokyo for a test event. And then I went to Richmond, Virginia for another event right after that. And then in June, I have three trips and in July, I will, July 12th, I will leave for the Olympic Games. I'll be there for a month. Wow. In Tokyo. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. That is so exciting. <laughs> I really want to know what it's like to, I, like, what is it like to go? What is that like? That's so incredible that you get to do that. Well, it is pretty amazing. And I'm grateful all the time that I have these opportunities. This, this Olympics will be very different than any other. It's going to be very restrictive. It's, it's going to be pretty much a business trip. You know, we want to get everybody in there safely and everybody out safely and, and hopefully have some success competing along the way, but it's, we're, we're not really going to be able to do very much. And in fact, we're still trying to figure out exactly what that's going to look like. Um, normally though, for an Olympic games, uh, especially if I have multiple teams that I'm working with, you know, I, I look at a general schedule of when they compete and then I have to choose which team am I going to support what day? Because um, sometimes there are four teams competing in the same day and all with athletes that I have supported in the past. And so I have to choose, well, where can I make the biggest impact? And that's the one that I choose to go to that day. So I might go to one sport one day, the next day I'll go to another one, the next day I'll go back to the first one, then the next day I'll go to a third one, you know, so I, I move around quite a bit and I try to support as many athletes as I can. So it's not as glamorous as you might think. It's, it's long hours, you know, up early, bed late. I'm typically not getting a whole lot of sleep and it's, there's a lot of sitting around. So they're warming up, they're competing, but then when something goes wrong, it's like three things go wrong at once. And and my phone's blowing up and I'm lots of different directions and trying to manage this situation. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of that going on. So you're just kind of trying to be in the right place at the right time. Um, so I get to see a lot of my sports. I don't really get to see the other sports that much, you know, cause I'm, I'm there with my sports and supporting them. And sometimes I'm on the floor with them. Sometimes I'm behind the scenes, you know, they won't let me out. The officials don't let me out on the floor. Mm-hmm. It just depends on the setup. So, um, you know, by the time I'm done, it, it's exhausting. It's oh, pretty exhausting, but it, it is imagine. so worth it when a team comes through and they medal and maybe they were a bit of an underdog and then they come out with this amazing performance. Or, you know, if I've worked with a team for a long time and they've been through ups and downs and injury and struggles and, and it all comes together in the right way for them and they come away with an Olympic medal. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing when that happens. So you, you said when, when something goes wrong, a lot of things tend to go wrong. Your phone's blowing up. You're here. You got to be there. Yeah. It sounds absolutely crazy. I'm, I'm just curious, like what, what is it you're helping them with? Are you, yeah. What, what is it? Is it an injury? Is it what, what is it? Well, so if, if I've done this the right way, I have an ongoing relationship for some time with the athletes and the team, and we've done a lot of the, the groundwork. So they've learned 
the mental skills they need. They have a good pre-performance plan. They, they know what to do when things don't quite go the way they expected. Um, they're working on managing anxiety, performing on the biggest stage in the world, you know, so we've been doing this work, but the things that tend to happen are the unexpected things. Like for instance, yeah, maybe an athlete gets sick and, um, and they're just not feeling a hundred percent. So, um, and sometimes the physicians can be, um, right near the athletes and sometimes they're limited in where they can go. So in the past, I've done sort of liaison between the physician and the athlete and the athlete saying this, and I'm calling the physician who's up in the stands because they can't get down on the deck, you know? And so we're kind of coordinating what to do and how to help. It's things like that. It could be an injury and, and it's not a bad injury, but it's certainly painful. And the athlete is trying to refocus on what do they need to do? Um, you know, sometimes we have uh, things go on at home. So we've had deaths in the family at home or some kind of um, stressful event happen to the family at home. And the athlete is trying to manage that at the same time, focus on their competition. So it could be something like that. Um, sometimes it's for the staff and the coaches, they've got things that go on at home or they've got some other personal challenge they're dealing with. And I'm trying to help them manage that so that they can also do their job the best they can to support the athletes. So it's, and now, you know, with the, with COVID, we have that whole additional layer that, you know, what if someone tests positive, then their, their Olympic opportunity is done, you know? And so, and then will they have to quarantine? Will they be on their own in a country where they don't know the language and what's going to be that process? And so we have to be able to support them that way. So there's a lot of things that also are going to happen this time around that will be different than anything we've ever faced. Mm. So very challenging for everybody involved. Yeah, it was challenging to begin with. This one's going to be a whole different experience. And I, I, I'm going to follow up with you. I'm really interested to see how it goes. I Actually, this is a relevant question I got from the audience, an audience member. Um, he asked, how do you work with an athlete who doesn't usually perform their best under pressure? Well, again, hopefully we have had some time to work on that because that's not something you just solve overnight. Mm -hmm. You know, I think with my field, sometimes there's this impression that, oh, there's this magical thing you're going to do and it's going to fix it, fix the problem. You know, all of a sudden they're laser focused and no anxiety and they go out and perform their best. And no, that's not really how it happens. There's a lot of work that goes into the mental training, just like the physical training. So, so hopefully we've been building that foundation all along. And, um, and a lot of athletes have that problem. They do great in training. And then it comes to the competition and the pressure's on and everybody's watching and, and they choke. And so, um, first of all, we talk about, well, what kind of mental skills can you use to help yourself in that situation? And it might be some breathing techniques, mindfulness, imagery, all, all those things can be useful. So they, they train those and practice those. Um, but then my, my other suggestion is to always practice under the conditions you think you're going to compete in. So mm. mock competitions, you set up a competition in the gym or at the pool or um, at the fencing club or whatever, you set it up like it's a competition and you go through those same things, you take it seriously, and you're going to feel the intensity, some of the, the nerves and the adrenaline. Then start to work with that, find out which of these skills help you, what cues help you, what um, what phrases that you say to yourself, what breathing techniques, what focus techniques, you know, what, mm. what things help you get through that. So the closer that we can bring training and competition, the better, and they're never going to be exactly the same, but you can, you can make those adjustments. And if right. you have time, you can practice with that. Right. What do you find is harder for athletes staying motivated for long periods of time or staying motivated after a big loss? Oh, that, I don't know that I have an answer to that question because I think that it, it really depends on the athlete and, mm. and some might um, find it easier or harder to be motivated in one or other of those conditions. Um, and it depends on where they are in their career sometimes too. So lots of uh, personal factors and then maybe the, the stage that they're in, in terms of their sport, or if they're, you know, are they trying to stay in, or are they sort of trying to move out of the sport and transition into life after sport? Um, so I don't think there's a, a good standard answer to that, but that's, you know, if I, if I had an athlete come to me with a situation like that, we would spend a lot of time exploring 
why that's happening and, and their, their background and where they are now and where they want to go and, and really understanding them as an individual. And then we would decide where to go from there. Mm. That leads me to another question, which is how do you balance the work that you do with individual athletes and the work that you do with bigger teams? You know, all of my sports are individual sports first. And what I mean by that is that the individual component is what they're known for, but some of them have a team component as well. So for instance, gymnastics, primarily individual, but there is a team event and fencing primarily individual, but there's also a, a team event for them. And most of the others I think are pretty individual. So most of my work, at least in the time I've been here at the USOPC has really been individually related. But um, it is interesting working with individual sports that then transition to this team component, because normally they're competing against each other too, not just other countries, but, you know, oh, yeah. they compete against each other to get spots on the team or, or to win, you know, whatever the case is. Um, so, and then, you know, two days later, they're in the team event and now all of a sudden they've got to come together and work together and support each other. And, and they do, you know, they, they want the team victory also. And so all of a sudden now they're helping each other, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, so it, it is interesting to have to shift from one type of thinking to another, and it, it can be done. Definitely. You can learn to do both as an athlete, but, but sometimes it, it's, it is a bit of a struggle and that's where you see some of the team dynamics can get challenging. Mm. How do you, especially with, uh, team or an athlete that you haven't worked with in the past, how do you start to build trust with them and kind of optimize that buy-in and that ability to really work with you um, so that you can do your job best? Yes. Well, I find that being, being around and being available, going to their practices, going to their training camps, you know, they get to see who I am and that I'm not, I'm not scary or weird. You know, <laughs> I think sometimes in the past, psychologists had this reputation, yeah. you know, being weird and, oh, you're going to psychoanalyze me kind of thing. So, yeah. you know, part of it is just being there, being around, um, talking to them about just life, you know, or anything. And, and they're, they're great people. They're fun. They like to joke. And, you know, if I can get in on a few jokes that helps, you know, make mm -hmm. me seem like I'm a little more normal. So, so it's really mm -hmm. that they get to see who I am. And some of these athletes I have known the entire time I've been here, 11 years, um, they've been in, in the Olympic or Paralympic, uh, family. And so I've known them for a long time and, and maybe they seek me out sometimes and not others. And if something comes up, they'll seek me out, but they don't, have an ongoing relationship with me. And some of them I still talk to weekly, you know, mm -hmm. so it just depends on what they want. But part of it is just being available and going to their events, learning their sport, talking to them in a more informal way. And then they know when there's a problem, they know to come to me or the coaches. I spend time with the coaches too. Yeah. And, and so that the coaches know who I am and what I do. And, and if their athlete has difficulty, then they send, you know, the athlete to me and say, Hey, you know, can you, can you help them with this? They're choking under pressure or they're dealing with a family issue that um, is distracting for them or something mm -hmm. like that. So, um, so the coaches or the, the administration administrators of the sport, sometimes they will learn about an athlete struggling and refer to me. So mm -hmm. it's I'm really getting to know the whole sport community really. Oh yeah. It's and you're working with, okay, so coaches, you're sometimes working with physicians, I assume physical therapists, administrative people, who else? <laughs> who am I missing? Um, yeah, that's, well, and then I have a team of other professionals. So I work with a nutritionist, a strength and conditioning uh -huh. coach, a physiologist, you know, and me. And, and so we all refer amongst each other and we uh -huh. work with the same athletes. So, right. you know, if one of them comes to me and I realize, oh, they, they need a nutrition plan, then I send them off to the nutritionist or, you know, they're, they're struggling with their strength. I send them to strength and conditioning and, and then they refer back to me when they see an athlete that's struggling with something, then, you know, so we, we, the, the more people I know within all of my networks, the better it is for getting athletes mm. every piece of treatment that they need. Mm. I imagine since all of you are on the same team, you all want the best for your athletes, this doesn't come up often, but I imagine sometimes there's 
there could be, you know, points of conflict where maybe you're, you don't agree with the nutritionist or you don't agree with the coach. How do you kind of balance these voices who maybe have different perspectives on what care for the athlete looks like? Yeah. And, you know, that happens frequently, I think, because everyone views the world through a different lens. And Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, my approach to that is to have an open conversation about it. And, and if there seems to be a point of conflict, or at least, you know, just rubbing up against each other, I guess, um, that's where we just need to talk about it. Okay, I'm seeing this. And this is my suggestion. And then someone else is seeing it this way. And this is their suggestion. And and can we come to some sort of middle ground on that? And um, so that's, certainly challenging sometimes. And when we get into the, the heat of competition and, you know, the, the pressure is on that's sometimes where things kind of get a little more tense, right? If there's already some tension, there's going to be more. Um, and so that's where we have to be really mindful of ourselves and our own reactions to things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think always the open conversation and just addressing it head on tends to be the most effective. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you see the future of this field going? Like where should aspiring sports psychologists look for for inspiration and for opportunity? Well, you know, it's really progressed quite a bit lately. And so I see that, I mean, it's it's moved in the direction that I always hoped it would. So, and I'm not gonna say we're there yet, but there are so many more jobs available. It used to be there were barely any jobs available now. Lots of athletic departments have jobs available. We have seven full-time sports psychologists here at the USOPC. And, you know, I hope that at some point we have more. We pull in a lot of contractors who might work with one sport or two sports. Um, So there are a lot of opportunities that way. Pro teams are also involving sports psychology and mental health practitioners. So it's, it's become kind of more commonplace now. And that would be my hope. And I guess maybe if we could progress even further would be to destigmatize the requests for mental health assistance. And I think sports psychology that has been pretty destigmatized, although I think some athletes and coaches maybe still don't, you know, don't mess with my head kind of a, a, a thing is how they see it. But mm-hmm. I think that we've gotten past a lot of that. Um, and now it's sort of the the stigma around mental health and athletes acknowledging that they need care for mental health. And we're really working on that. And that is changing, I think, by the month almost in terms of awareness and willingness to talk about it. So that part um, is getting, that's improving so much. We just um, hired a director of mental health here at the USOPC. It was a new hire about, I'm going to say about six to eight months ago. And now she's been able to hire four more mental health providers because there's been such a demand. So that's huge. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if we've ever built a department that quickly here. Um, so things like that are happening, which I think shows where the field is going. Mm. So what would you advise psychology majors or you know people who are maybe interested in going into this field, but they're not entirely sure? Where can they look to kind of get their feet wet and get some experience in this to see if this is actually something they might be interested in professionally? Well, there's a a wonderful professional organization called the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, or ASP is how we refer to it. And they have a conference every year in the fall. It's really great. And it's great for students. A lot of students come and attend and learn, and then you can hear people who've been in the field for a long time, hear them talk about their work and ideas they use for helping teams and athletes. Um, You can meet people in the field that way too. So it's very student friendly, I would say. And so that gives a sense of what the field is like and what people are doing in the field. So that would be one thing. And then, you know, another would be to connect up with a sports psychologist who's in the field and and learn more from them. I say that knowing that a lot of us are really scheduled, you know, one thing after the other. And so it's hard to shadow like you might in some other professions, partly because we have a lot of confidentiality in our work. You know, we just can't share that with other people. It's very private. So it's hard to shadow, but you can learn a little bit about the day-to-day and what does this person do in their work. And 
you know, decide, does that seem like something that you would like to learn more about? Um, but I think it's really hard to know until you actually do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to know if that's really something for you or if it's what you think it's going to be. And that's, that goes for any profession really. Mm. And actually, bef- I want to make sure we hit on this. We talked about what it might look like when you're at the Olympics um, with a team. What is it? What does your day-to-day kind of look like when you're not doing that, when you're not traveling? Um, well, it depends on if I'm at a, a week in the office or if I'm with the team on a road on the road, like with them um, for a competition or a camp or something like that. So if I'm in the office, I have a lot of individual appointments with athletes. And then I also meet with teams sometimes, sometimes I meet with coaches, sometimes I meet with the sports medicine staff, you know, we're trying to coordinate care for an athlete. Um, I have a supervisor and we have our team, as I said, with the nutritionist and the strength and conditioning. And, you know, we have a multidisciplinary team. We meet to try to coordinate the care for our athletes. Sometimes I, I mean, I do things like this quite a bit, or um, I just earlier today did a for USA Gymnastics, we did a panel on mental health that I um, helped to coordinate and ask the athletes questions about how they were coping with their mental health or, you know, talk about resources that they've used. Um, So I moderated that. And so there's been lots of opportunities like that, but it's, there's quite a variety. When I'm on the road with a team, I, I still might be taking care of some things back at home, but mostly I'm focused on that team. So it's all about going to their training, going to their competition, meeting with those athletes individually, meeting with the coaches as needed, doing some team sessions. We might do some mindfulness training or some team building. Um, so it's really mostly focused on that particular sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be long hours. You know, you get up early to go to training and then there's a competition. Maybe sometimes there's something else in the evening. Um, but it it is pretty much focused on that one sport and then trying to manage anything that goes on at home that I need to take care of. Sometimes there's a time zone change that makes it very challenging. Yeah. And you work, you said with 11 teams right now? I have, yes, I have 11 sports I'm responsible for. I don't work with all of them. I have um, three contractors that work with three of the teams. And then um, some of the sports don't work with me that much. And some of them work with me a lot. So it, it ranges in terms of what each sport asks for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what are those, what are those teams out of curiosity? Um, The ones that I work with the most? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That would be uh, diving, fencing, gymnastics, and somewhat with wrestling. Okay. Wow. Your job is super cool. (laughs) I do love my job. I have to say, I mean, it can be exhausting sometimes, but I mostly love it. Mm. How do you find balance? You know, um, it's interesting when I, when my children were younger, I just had to say no to things, (laughs) you know, I didn't have a choice. I couldn't go on all the trips I would have liked to have gone on. And so I just said no. And I I know that I missed out on some things that I really wanted to do, but it was important to be there for my kids. Now that my kids are gone, it's almost harder to say no. Right. Um, But I do, I do try to keep when I'm home, I try to keep my weekends pretty much, um, for me and for my husband and um, our friends and whatever we choose to do. But if I'm traveling with a team, oftentimes it is over a weekend. So then that boundary is gone. Mm -hmm. And really from now through mid August, it's harder to have a boundary because when things happen, it's, it's critical, you know? So I'm, I'm a bit on call now, but come mid August and through September, I will be, you know, scaling back Mm -hmm. quite a bit. So, you know, in, in my world, it, we look at an Olympic quad and usually the year leading into the Olympics, it's a lot harder to have those boundaries, but then the year following it's a little bit easier. And so we try to balance it that way. But, you know, if push comes to shove, if I'm struggling, I will just say, I I need some time and I'll take a little time. And, you know, Mm -hmm. even if it's just a few hours that I take for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before we end, I have one more question that I like to ask. Um, What is one skill, quality, or general factor, doesn't have to be intrinsic, that has served you no matter where you went in life? You know, I I think it would be persistence. There have been a lot of things I wanted to do in my life, and not all of them have been easy. In fact, many of them have been very difficult. And uh, I just, I get my mindset on something and like, I'm going to make it happen, you know? Mm -hmm. And if that way doesn't work, then I'm going to find some other way. And I've had to do that 
multiple times with some things, but I have found, you know, as I progress in my career that most of the time now I can figure out a workaround, like I can figure out how to make something happen. So, uh, and I think that persistence has served me well through gymnastics, through injuries, through graduate school, through parenting and being a single parent for a while and with kids in sports and then now to where I am. So, um, yeah, I think it's persistence. I love it. I love it. Do you have anything else to add before we, we wrap up given who my audience is? Uh, you know, the, the only thing I would say, I guess, or the last thing I would say is that, um, it took me 18, 19 years to get the job I wanted. And, you know, I always had that on my radar, but it wasn't going to happen in the beginning. And so all the things that I did leading to here prepared me for this, even though sometimes along the way, I thought, "Ah, why am I having to do this? This really does. It's not relevant to what I want to do, but it turned out sometimes that it was in, in an odd sort of way. Like I never knew I'd be so involved with athlete mental health right now. And all that training I did in general mental health is really paying off right now. So, Mm. you know, all the experiences you have along the way are valuable in in some way, even if you don't think you know why at the time, it's really good to invest in every opportunity you have Um, and not to give up. You know, if you're trying to go into a, a career like this, it does not just drop into your lap. So you do have to work at it. And maybe you do some things that are not your end goal in the beginning, but then you work your way there and you just, you keep persisting really. So, so that's what I would add for the end. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Psych Mike. Is there anything we didn't cover here that you want more information about? If so, follow psych underscore Mike on Instagram and sign up for the newsletter on psychmike.com so that you can have a say in what gets asked during these episodes. Through those platforms, you'll also get more career tips and opportunities to submit feedback. And if Psych Mike has helped you at all on your personal or professional journey, please consider taking a moment to submit a review. It really helps others find and benefit from this resource, and I just love hearing your feedback. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I seriously can't wait to catch you next week.